you know, I, w- I went through building a house over the last four years and I've probably only spent 10 hours on it in total. And the way I did that was by hiring really, really great people. So I hired a really good project manager, a really good architect, really good interior designer, and a really good general contractor. And I trusted all of them and I incentivized all of them to really care. And I think I apply that same methodology to business. Um, So I really just try and hire great people, have the right idea, be very clear about what I need, and then let them run with it. And so there's been multiple businesses that I've spun up where I've probably only spent three to five hours total. And past starting it and coming up with the concept, my real value is I can fund the businesses um, so they don't need to go raise capital. And I can promote them via Twitter and talking about what I'm doing. To be honest, it's really just me scratching my own itches and really they're hobby businesses. Hello everyone, my name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Andrew Wilkinson with me today, and Andrew has been a huge inspiration to me. I originally just started following him on Twitter and have been fortunate enough to become friends with him over the last year and was just really inspired by uh, the way he's kind of designed his life and a lot of the things that he has tweeted about, talked about, written about, um, I really identify with. And so really just took a keen interest. He now runs a company called Tiny Capital, which is basically the Berkshire Hathaway of internet businesses. Uh, We talk about a company that he just took public called WeCommerce. We talk about how he got started with a company called MetaLab, which was the design firm behind Slack and Coinbase and did work for Uber and some of the most well-known internet businesses today. And we go into the nuances of what it's like to compensate a CEO or incentivize people uh, to get the outcome that you want. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And thank you so much for continuing to join me on this journey. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Yep. Same thing, man. Been a big fan and really uh, enjoyed getting to get to know you over the last couple months. So yeah, I've got a great list of things to chat about today. Let's just start by uh, your story, kind of who you are and uh, growing up, and uh, then we'll dive into it. Sure. So I grew up in uh, Vancouver, Canada, and was always really interested in computers. My dad was an architect, and so I grew up around uh, all sorts of uh, neat you know, Max and got to play around with all sorts of uh, stuff that I, you know, shouldn't have been able to like, you know, great big, huge printers and uh, networked uh, Macs to play games and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I just loved it. And uh, when I was 14, uh, my family moved to Victoria, which is a smaller, sleepy city. It's kind of like moving from, uh, you know, New York to Connecticut upstate somewhere where it's really sleepy. And I was super bored. I had nothing to do. I didn't know anyone. Uh, It was the summer before school started. And I started playing around on the internet. And I met this kid from Hawaii in an internet chat room. And he said, hey, I'm starting a 
tech news site. Why don't we do it together? And I was bored and, you know, I kind of had figured out how to build websites. And so we started working on it together. And before we knew it, we actually started getting a ton of traffic to the website. We started selling ads. We started hiring writers. Um, and I became completely immersed in this world of online journalism uh, and really running a business. Um, and so I basically skipped high school, just kind of barely passed and spent all my time running this website. And, you know, I got to have all sorts of neat experiences, negotiating ad deals, uh, you know, with companies like Microsoft, getting sent tens of thousands of dollars worth of technology equipment to play with and review. Uh, I got to travel to all the big Apple conferences. And at one point, I got to interview Steve Jobs. So I had this really amazing experience running a business throughout high school. And when I graduated high school, I built up the courage to go to my dad and say, look, I, I don't want to go to university. I, I just want to keep doing this internet stuff. And, you know, the internet bubble had just burst. And my dad was like, what are you thinking? You know, you're going to end up working at a gas station. You have to go to school. And so he ended up talking me into going to uh, journalism school because that was kind of the most similar thing to what I was doing. And so I go to journalism school, uh, moved to Toronto. It's negative 10. Uh, you know, I give up the website. and Pretty much on day one of, of my first course, the professor said, uh, you know, you better love this because you're entering a dying industry. And the only reason I'm here teaching you is because I got laid off from the big local paper here. And I was just thinking like, man, what am I doing? I was running a, you know, running a great publication and making money and having a lot of fun. And here I am learning about how to, you know, be a newspaper journalist. I have no interest in that. And so pretty quickly, uh, after about three or four months, I dropped out moved back to the West Coast, got a job as a barista, <laughs> was just trying to figure out my life, living in my parents' basement. And uh, I started reading all these exciting books about Google and uh, Silicon Valley. And I decided that was where I wanted to be. And so I started saving up money for my barista job. And I realized, hey, maybe I can save up more money if I do some freelance web design. And I bet there's some companies down in Silicon Valley that could use design help and I, I kind of figured out that if I pretended to be an agency instead of some you know kid in his parents' basement, I could probably make a lot more money and I have a lot more legitimacy. And so I came up with the name MetaLab, designed a really nice looking website. And uh, I started emailing founders of Silicon Valley startups. This is in 2000 and I guess 2006, 2007. And to my surprise, I got a whole bunch of responses. And a lot of them said, yeah, we would love some help with our marketing sites and, you know, designing our web apps and that kind of stuff. And to be honest, I, I got really lucky. I timed it really, really well. The internet was really taking off. People were starting to build software online and the iPhone came out that same year. And so before I knew it, I became one of the preeminent design agencies in Silicon Valley, helping startups design uh, web-based software initially and then uh, mobile software for the iPhone. And uh, won a lot of really big contracts with companies like Apple, Google, Microsoft, you know, you name it. We ended up working with all sorts of interesting companies. Um, and then we also worked with startups. So we um, helped design the first version of Slack, uh, first version of Coinbase, uh, got to know the Shopify guys really early on and played a really important role uh, in their ecosystem. We kind of have like forest gumped our way through the internet. So it's been uh, you know, an amazing experience owning that agency. And within a few years, I realized that 
I had profits and I didn't really know what to do with them. And so I started a variety of different companies, mostly in the software space, kept doing that for a few years and realized that, you know, starting companies is hard and running five of them at once is even harder. And so in 2013, I kind of had a bit of a breakdown, was totally overwhelmed running all my companies, was fortunate that they were profitable and most of them were going okay. Um, But I was pouring my heart out to a friend and just saying, look, I'm completely bagged. I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, You know, what do I do? And he goes, you need to read about this guy, Warren Buffett. This guy has 100 businesses. He's one of the wealthiest people in the world. And yet he says he just sits on his butt reading all day. And I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. Uh, I need to read about this person. And so I picked up uh, The Making of an American Capitalist, the Roger Lowenstein biography about Buffett. And what I read just totally blew my mind. You know, within about a month, I decided that I was going to basically copy Berkshire Hathaway. I was going to spin out all of my businesses, hire CEOs to run them. Um, And then I'd try my hand at buying uh, internet businesses that I understood that were within my circle of competence. And so I started doing that with my business partner, Chris, about seven years ago. Um, And now we're up to about 30 majority owned businesses. And I get to do it all from Victoria, which is amazing. Um, so we've built you know, a pretty sizable business, but we've always been outside of the Silicon Valley echo chamber. Um, and you know, until recently, we never raised any money. We did this all ourselves uh, with a little bit of bank debt. So it's been a, it's been a fun ride. I love it. And, and I'm sure you've been told this before, but I've listened to you on podcasts and I've read a lot of your stuff. You do just a wonderful job kind of telling your story. More people could learn from that. Um, oh, thanks a lot. All right. I've got a few questions out of what you said. The first was, you said that you were making profits at a meta lab. And typically, especially as a young person that's starting to make a lot of money, you usually hear that like they went and bought a car and then they probably got a nicer house and maybe starts, you know, blowing the money. But everything I've kind of observed from you and even kind of what you just said is, it doesn't sound like that was ever really on the agenda. You more saw it as a problem of, of where do I put this? I guess my question is, like, did you just kind of grow up, you know, not needing to, not thinking about money as this way to like, you know, kind of splurge and especially as a young person or, you know, like, how, how do you, how do you think about money at an early age, I guess? Um, I think you're giving me way too much credit. <laughs> I, um, I, I really wanted money for two reasons. One was my dad was an architect and uh, most of the time, you know, an architect sounds like a very glamorous job, but most of the time it's actually a very, very challenging business, a lot of competition, a lot of regulation, a lot of like budget constraints and stuff. And so for most of my life, my parents didn't actually have very much money and money was always a source of tension in our house. So growing up, I always thought, you know, I don't want to deal with that kind of stress. I want to make a bunch of money. And then, you know, I grew up in Vancouver and Vancouver went through this massive economic boom during the time that I lived there. And a lot of my friends in school, their, you know, their families got very wealthy or they already were. And so I witnessed all my friends, you know, getting second houses and nice cars and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I just went, man, I feel hard done by, I really want all those things. And so when I first started making money, I started buying nice clothes and, you know, I bought a sports car and spent money on silly electronics and all sorts of other stuff. And pretty quickly, I realized that there was a real limit to that, that it didn't make me feel that much better. Uh, it was kind of fun in the short term, but really I could only spend so much money and there was no 
there was really, it was like a hole. There was just no, there was no point. It was endless. And so I, what I found that I got a lot of satisfaction out of was using the money to build cool stuff and solve my problems. And so the first business that I started with the profits of MetaLab was a company called Ballpark. And it was software to do invoicing and estimates because that's something we did a lot of in our agency. And the problem that we had was we had multiple people sending proposals and estimates and invoicing and stuff. And nobody had really created a good multi-user way of doing that with payment built in. And so we were just scratching our own itch and we built that product. And before I knew it, you know, I'd spent, I think I only spent probably 50 grand or something building that product. And I think I made the money back within six months of launching it or something like that. And the feeling of, you know, spending 50 grand to make, you know, 120 a year and make recurring revenue. So every morning when I woke up, I'd made a couple hundred bucks was just so addictive to me. And so I would actually say that um, unlike a lot of people in tech where they forgo, you know, they make a small CEO salary or something for 10 years in the hope that their equity stake or stock options become a payday. I actually lived a really nice life from within, you know, a year of MetaLab starting because the whole way along we were profitable and I had excess profits. I could afford to take five or 10% and use that to go on vacations and have a nice house and a nice car. But I just realized that there was a real, there was a big end to that. I mean, you know, David Hunnemeyer Hansen puts it really well. Um, he says, you know, what are you going to do? Go sit on an island drinking mojitos? Like, how long is that fun? So for me, it's always been about reinvesting money and interesting uh, problems and, you know, working with interesting people. I love it. One thing uh, I don't think gets talked about enough, but you're an incredible designer. Uh, a lot of the work that you've done is has stood the test of time. I mean, you talked about Slack and Coinbase, but if you go on MetaLab and Dribble and just look at a lot of the, the work that you've been involved with, uh, it's really good. Do, do you consider yourself a designer and did, did somebody teach you how to design or did you just kind of figure it out on your own? Um, well, I mean, that's where I started. So when I first started MetaLab, I was the only designer and I still love getting into Figma or, you know, back in the day, Photoshop and staying up till 6 a.m. designing something. But I pretty quickly realized that if I didn't delegate, I wasn't going to ever be able to scale my business. And so um, now design is a, a fun hobby. You know, I, I worked a lot on the, the new tiny website or I did the website for our foundation or I'll kind of have fun collaborating with a designer, but I don't day-to-day get to do that anymore, which is, you know, it's a bit of a bummer. But going back to all the things you referenced, like Slack and Coinbase, I mean, I didn't have a big role in those. I just hired great designers. But the lens through which I view business is often that I'm looking for something that's thoughtful, well-designed, and has an exceptional product, right? So I think from that perspective, I have a like a design-first mindset. And was that just like genetics, something, or maybe your dad was an architect, you were just kind of born with it, or did somebody teach you that? I think like everything around in our house was thoughtful, right? Like my dad and mom really loved design. And so it was like, if there's a pen, it's like a really cool architect's pen. Or if it's a ruler, it's like a European weird ruler that (laughs) architects use. Or, you know, my mom might choose this really neat lamp that she thinks is, you know, really well designed. So it wasn't, and it wasn't like we talked about that. It's not like my dad would sit me down and say, son, this is why this is well designed or whatever. It's just 
kind of um, through osmosis, I was surrounded by well, well-designed things. And uh, I just loved the freedom of Photoshop that you could create anything that a small agency run by some 19-year-old kid could look bigger than, you know, IDEO if you design the website correctly. Um, there is an incredible power to that. It's one of the few businesses where you can actually execute 100% of your creativity. Like if you think about an architect's vision, an architect designs a building and then it's a series of heartbreaking uh, reductions as the engineers come in and say that you need to change something. And then the real estate developer has a budget issue and then the interior designer wants to do something different. And so your vision gets kind of messed up as it goes through various phases. And with a, uh, with web design, you can actually execute 100% on what you want to do as a designer, which is really, really powerful. And it doesn't cost anything. There's no capital cost. I've never thought about it like that. I tell people all the time in real estate that a rendering is just a rendering. Um, people get enamored by the rendering, but it changes. Well, we were building a house right now and we did a lot of rendering. And I'll tell you, they weren't very, very accurate <laughs> in the end. <laughs> It almost happens every time, uh, but it looks good. It's a good place to start from. All right, kind of pivoting into to tiny. Um, my my first just kind of question, and, and you and I have talked offline about this, but did you have founder guilt when you decided that it was time to replace yourself and hire a CEO and and run your next business? Like the year after that, was there were you being pulled? You know, like you maybe you would have done something differently and you felt guilty for leaving? Like, was there any guilt in that interim or did you feel really confident in doing that right out the gate? I think like every founder thinks they want to be Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, where they have a long run from starting their company in a garage to multi-billion dollar publicly listed company. Um, but that's the exception, not the rule. And so for me, it was the first kind of five to seven years of running my business. I just kept asking myself like, how many more Peter Drucker books do I need to read before I become a good manager and enjoy this stuff? Uh, what's the book or the course or the coach I need to really love this? And at the end of the day, I just realized I just don't love day-to-day operations of a business and HR and all that kind of stuff. I love the excitement around a strategy or an idea, um, or I like you know operating at a very, very high level, but I have very limited tolerance for the day-to-day stuff. Um, and so that doesn't make me a very good CEO. Um, and then I also am very lazy. And when I say lazy, I just mean that I don't like doing things I don't want to do. So I'll work extremely hard on stuff that I enjoy and I'm good at. But when I'm tasked with something that I don't enjoy, I just turn off. And so it was always logical for me to delegate. And as I delegated more and more and more, I noticed that my businesses did better and better because instead of trying to bash my head against the wall and do something I sucked at, I was having someone who loved doing that task do it. And obviously they would execute better than I would. Um, And so when you take that to an extreme, the most extreme form of delegation is investing. So I just kind of ended up here 15 years later. What you just said, I don't like doing stuff that I don't like doing. And then you shut down. I think you said that on another podcast and that kind of hooked me. I, I think about that all the time when I'm working on something I love it's all all speed, full-time go. And as soon as it's not what I like, I'm just like a sloth. I, I just can't do it. Well, and there's so many silly Silicon Valley slash just general business narratives about like, you know, you should sleep under your desk and go crazy until you figure it out. And I just don't, I don't think so. Like I kind of like saying like, um, 
you know, if you don't want to become the world's best violinist, why do it? You know, when there's a thousand people lined up who have lived their life obsessed with violin, go let those people do that. I think you almost have to go through this period of your life and some people get through it quicker and some people maybe never get through it where the things that I didn't like doing, I would just put a lot of pressure on myself is like what you just said is like, no, I just need to read another management book or like I need to go to a conference or get a coach for this. And then finally you realize like it's okay to just suck at this and admit it and delegate it and move on. But it's taken, it took me probably maybe three years of a lot of pain and not knowing where it was coming from. But I kept like digging deeper into the problem rather than just moving it to somebody else's desk. There's another, there's another skill set of the more important thing is knowing what a good executive in that role looks like or, or whatever it is, a contractor or, you know, team member or whatever. So, you know, you might not, as a real estate developer, you might not understand engineering perfectly. But over time, you start learning what the right type of engineer you want to hire looks like and how to know they're competent. And that's the skill set I think I've developed, right? Like, I don't know accounting to an extreme. You know, I know enough. I know, you know, how to read a PL and balance sheet and understand my business, but I don't understand some of the minutiae. But I know how to look for someone who does, right? I know the kind of signals that I can watch for and I know how to incentivize those people. Um, and I think that's the skill set that's the most valuable. Just random question. Do you actually like reading a PL and a balance sheet? Like, does it give you joy to read that? Or is that what Chris does? Or if it's obvious, like if it, there's a lot of PL and balance sheets where they're very opaque, where, you know, it's like all operating expenses are grouped into one line. When there's when it's clearly broken out and I can go, okay, they're spending this much on R and D, this much on marketing. I can see where the salaries are um, and what the org chart looks like and stuff. I love that. Um, it, I think it can be really instructive. But you know, like anything in accounting, something can be uh, obscure. It could be obscured, and opaque, or it can be really transparent and interesting. Yep. You've been kind of outspoken. So you said you own 30 kind of majority uh, ownership and 30 internet businesses. And you've also been outspoken that you're not looking to buy businesses that are, you know, creating the next AI to go to space. You kind of want boring internet businesses. Uh, my first question is, um, what's like an immediate no? What are some things that, you know, you get, you see hundreds of businesses probably a month or a quarter how do you know something's almost a no right out the gate where you don't have to spend more than five minutes on it? Well, I mean, the easy answer is like, usually it's scale, right? So a lot of people come to us and say, hey, I want to sell my business. And it's what I call a corner store um, instead of a chain. I want to buy a chain. I never want a corner store. What we see a lot of in tech is small businesses that have, you know, $200,000, $300,000 of revenue and the founder um, comes to us and says, hey, my business makes $300,000 a year because I don't pay myself. And I'm the developer and I do everything myself. And it's not growing. But you know, I think it's worth 900 grand or a million bucks or whatever. And we look at it and go, okay, well, if this person leaves, there's really nothing here. We have to replace this person um, and uh, you know, put a developer in there and stuff. And then the business isn't growing, so we have to get in there and do all this heavy lifting to make it worth worth anything. I'd much rather go and buy something that's more established, that already has scale, that has a management team. Um, you know, it's okay if there's CEO change or founder change, but we don't want 
the founder to leave and be left with nothing. That's a huge thing. You know, we want to be doing uh, something we think makes the world better. And I don't mean it has to be kumbaya charity work. It, it can be just a good service, you know, happy customers and happy employees. Um, that's a big piece. Um, and then we want to see something that has some kind of moat, something that makes it a little hard to compete with. And we see a lot of businesses with sandcastle moats. So an example of that might be somebody who creates the number one ranked uh, rope on Amazon.com uh, in their marketplace. And right now, they might be doing $5 million of annual sales and ranking number one. But as soon as competitors catch on, they're going to start having tons of other people with uh, you know lower margins and lower prices competing with them and employing every dirty trick to get their ratings down. And uh, you know maybe even Amazon will step in and compete with them. So we don't want businesses like that. We want businesses that have some staying power, uh, you know, a unique brand or a network effect or SaaS recurring revenue, something that makes people stick with them versus other people, it makes their business defensible and different. And on the, the one man band kind of companies, do most of those owners, I don't know if they're to argue, but do they try and argue that, you know, if they did leave tomorrow, the business would be great? Or do most people kind of say, yeah, you're right. If I'm not here, I'm... Well, the, the problem is that most of the time in tech, they want to be valued like they're Chipotle, right? So it's kind of like, it, hey, I'm a one location restaurant that's owner operated uh, where the, you know I'm both the chef and the maitre d' and uh, I want to be valued like I'm Chipotle. And you're like, no, you haven't built the process, the people, the scale, you haven't proved the model. It's not worth that. And at the end of the day, you just need to buy something that has been a little more borne out. Otherwise, you can lose a lot of money. And, you, you know, we just don't want anything where we have to jump in and be a genius in order to do well. And then jumping forward, once you have a business that you have kind of agreed to with the owner that you want to buy and, you know, you're you're well known for getting deals done quick without a lot of administrative kind of bullshit and a lot of the private equity jargon. Can you walk me through what like, hey, we like your business. We've agreed kind of on a price. What does the next few weeks or months look like to close? Um, assume you're talking, I'm assuming buyers ask you or sellers ask you that all the time. Like, what's the next week going to look like? I'm kind of asking you from the perspective of a seller. Well, I mean, typically it's a process of just validating the, the key claims that they've made. So the most important thing we're trying to assess when we talk to a founder is, is this a good person, right? Is this someone trustworthy? And when they say, um, you know, this is the reality of the business, this is how much work I do, this is, uh, you know, these are the true costs, I want to know that I'm dealing with someone who is trustworthy. And so uh, we spend a lot of time talking to founders and then also trying to figure out if we have mutual friends and that kind of stuff. And that skips a lot of diligence, right? If this is a great person, there's not a ton of diligence we have to do. And if uh, it comes back that they're not trustworthy or they're cagey, well, we've learned over and over again, you just don't want to do a, uh, a deal with them, right? Uh, Buffett says you can't do a good deal with a bad person. I think that's very true. Um, so we spend a lot of time on that kind of qualitative side. And then from there, it's really the, the sort of businesses we're buying, um, usually most of the revenue flows through uh, something like Stripe. And so we'll spend a lot of time digging into Stripe and looking at the recurring revenues or transactions and just validating that what they said on the P&L is roughly right, that their bank balance lines up, 
um, figuring out working capital requirements, all that kind of stuff. It's very similar to what private equity might do, but I'd say it's much more focused on the 20% that actually matters. And I think a lot of private equity diligence is really designed as a negotiating tactic because they're trying to turn up some fussy detail. I remember once we had a private equity firm make a very compelling bid for our business, one of our businesses, and they get into diligence. We spend two months in diligence and they come back and they say, guys, we've had a big moment of pause. We really need to renegotiate. We're going to add in an earnout." And their reasoning was there was a thousand dollar deferred revenue adjustment, right? It was literally like a thousand dollars should have been in August and it went into September or something. And, you know, you look at it and you're just like, that's such BS. Like you're just pointing out acne on my face to <laughs> try and put me off and, you know, get me to renegotiate. And we ended up walking away from the deal. Um, but so we just avoid all that crap. And, you know, we're very blunt, right? So when someone emails me, I literally, they'll be like, hey, can I get you on the phone to tell you about my business? And I'll actually say like, no, can you send me your P&L? And can you send me your requested price? And then, uh, you know, if it makes sense, let's get on the phone. But the reason I do that is I just, I don't want to waste their time and go down the track um, without being honest and upfront about what we would be willing to pay. Because nothing makes people more offended than when you spend three weeks talking to them and then you tell them your number and it offends them and doesn't make sense. Uh, I think everyone feels upset. So we just try and be really, really blunt. Do you negotiate? Or do you follow Buffett's rule? Here's my offer. Take it or leave it. Uh, we'll negotiate, but I'm more and more getting into the Buffett camp. Um, I really think like if you incentivize to give you an honest number and you gain a reputation for being fair and saying yes when the number makes sense, then I think that that's a you know has a lot of long term benefit and it makes your life a lot less stressful. So more and more. Um, I would endeavor to get to that. And we're, we're increasingly just asking people, we're saying, look, let's just skip all the negotiation, tell us your number. And if the number makes sense, then we'll say yes. Yep. I know you get asked this all the time and I'll be another one to ask you, but we don't have to go through every scenario, but this is on structuring CEO comp. I know every situation's different, but can you just maybe riff for a couple minutes on what's important to you um, and maybe what are the questions that you're trying to get answers to when you're designing a, a comp plan for a CEO? Well, there's really a few different um, buckets, I'd say. You know, One is if the business is small and you want it to get really big and you think there's a lot of growth ahead. Um, and I think in those instances, we want to try and create a lot of upside Sometimes we have equity or phantom equity, depending on what makes sense, but we want that to be risked, right? So either reduced total comp, reduced salary in order to get the equity, or we want them to actually buy it with their own cash. My preference is that the CEO actually cuts a check and that they write, you know, whatever their net worth is, take, you know, 20% of it and put it into this stock. Um, I I love that alignment. Um, You know, if it's a more established business that's already at scale and slower growing, typically we'll push for um, primarily, uh, you know, a, a fair uh, base salary that basically pays their lifestyle, so they're not sweating. You know, can I put my kids through college or send them to private school or whatever they want to do, but not so rich that they're um, checked out, and the rest comes in the form of variable comp. And what we typically like to do is set 
um, a historical kind of growth um, percentage where we say, look, the business has been growing at 15% for five years. So, um, you know, you need to hit 15%. And if you hit that, you're going to unlock your variable. And depending on how much the business is growing or whatever, we would adjust that hurdle. And each year it would just keep increasing. So we're never doing a budgeting process. We've realized that budgeting is just incentivizing your staff to be too conservative and negotiate against you. Um, so we just try and keep it super simple and make the decision once uh, and leave them to it. And on that already at scale business, you kind of want the CEO having the decision at the end of the year, do I send tiny cash or do I keep the cash in the business and, and grow next year? Well, no, the way that we do it is similar to Berkshire. We basically say, look, we think a reasonable amount of money to keep in the business is, you know, X million dollars in working capital. And anything beyond that, um, you know, you can pitch us if you want to. And it's not, you know, if you want to spend another 200 grand, we don't care. If it's another uh, 20 million, then we're going to care. So what we need to see is an intelligent capital allocation plan, right? So we need to know there's going to be a high return on capital if we keep it within that business. Um, so if a CEO comes to us and says, guys, look, if we spend a million dollars extra this quarter on advertising on Facebook, we can increase our revenue by, you know, $3 million and our earnings by, you know, a million bucks. It's a no brainer. We'll do that a thousand times. What we won't do is kind of, you know, boondoggle R&D projects that don't make sense just because the CEO wants to kind of play and have fun. And, you know, once in a while, we'll agree to those just to kind of see what happens. But typically, the expectation is most of the excess capital flows back up to head office, and then we redeploy it. And can they ever come to you and say, like, they might not even have the cash in the business, but say, hey, we have a project we want to work on. Will you actually send us more cash? Or do you say, no, go get yeah, a bank loan or totally. something? Okay. Totally. I mean, it depends on what it is, right? I love getting them to get a bank loan because then they're like, oh, shit, this is like on me and this is affecting me in the future. I mean, what Berkshire Hathaway does, which we want to start doing more of, is they basically say, look, we'll lend you the money, but it's at 15%. And so it's going to hit your P&L at 15%. Do you really want that interest charge? Um, just as an incentive for them to really pay attention and care about having that additional capital. But we're still, to be honest, we're still figuring this out. We've made all sorts of silly mistakes where we've done, you know, basically free loans to different businesses for growth and you know, or or sometimes we've not given the businesses enough capital. So there's a, it's, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Yep. It's kind of a random question. If, if you had one hour to talk to each of your CEOs per year, what would you talk to them about in that hour? Hmm. I think I think it would probably be about incentives. I mean, I think we've we've just seen that that's like the most powerful force. Um, within businesses. Um, we've noticed this with our own CEOs that when we have the incentives aligned, good things generally happen. And when we mess them up, bad things generally happen. So I, th I think I'd want to talk a lot about that. And then also just psychology. I mean, all the, the Munger stuff around, you know, basic kind of Robert Cialdini psychology is just so profoundly valuable. And then third to that, maybe getting them to read, you know, about Buffett and uh, value investing and stuff like that. That's been something that I think people either get it or they don't. We've had a few of our CEOs really light up reading some of that stuff. Yep. Fun fact, you said on, I think it was the uh, My First Million podcast about your favorite book, The Tao of Charlie Munger. 
which then I read, and then we gave about 150 of them away for Christmas gifts this year. You're actually going to be getting this as a gift for being on the podcast, so you can hand it out to somebody. But oh, amazing! It's like my favorite book. Um, sweaty, it's so good. It's I think so that's good. the most important book for anyone in business to read. It's unbelievable. It sits on my desk now, and really appreciate that recommendation. Sweaty startup from Twitter asked, "What is the key role or person?" who can take a company from 500K to a million in revenue to a five to $10 million company. That's a pretty generic, but um, I figured I'd ask it. Well, I think it's somebody who's done that before. At the end of the day, what we've learned is that, I mean, it's kind of like there's, there's, um, there's sprinters, right? People who run the 100-yard dash. And then there's people who run uh, relay races or 400 meters. And then there's people who run massive marathons and Ironmans. And you want to choose the appropriate person for what you're doing. So when you're starting your business, you might want a sprinter and that's often the founder. But for that next phase, you want someone who's more methodical and is going to pace themselves and be more strategic with their water. You know, I've said it a million times, but at the end of the day, you just want to hire people who have done the thing you want done before. If you're building a house, you want to hire an architect that's done you know, a hundred houses similar to the one that you want. You don't want to hire a modernist when you want a Cape Cod style house. Um, and same with the general contractor. You don't want to hire, you know, your your cousin who's thinking about getting into carpentry. You want to hire an, you know, very accomplished general contractor who's been doing it for 30 years. Um, and the same is true in business. And the hard part is the alchemy of figuring out who has the right skills, but then who has the right DNA and culture fit. Um, and who's going to resonate with the company itself? And you know, it, it can be as subtle as I might interview someone and go, you know, they tick all the boxes on experience, but they're quite uptight and they wear a suit. And this is a company full of designers. And you can just look at them and go, you know, the body is going to reject this organ if <laughs> I uh, implant it. Yep. Um, you speak really highly of your partner, Chris. So two questions there: What do you do versus what does he do? Well, you know, both of us, if one of us got hit by a bus, either of us could run tiny quite effectively. I think that I'm, it's funny, I'm very optimistic when it comes to ideas and I'm very pessimistic when it comes to uh, finance, the economy, like I'm a, I'm a perma bear kind of. And so what happens with us is I'll get very enamored with an idea or a person and Chris will bring me back down to earth. And then on the flip side, I'll be very down on the economy or our businesses. And Chris will say, what are you talking about? You know, look at all these incredible businesses and moats and cash flows, et cetera, and, you know, ignore the market. So it's kind of this combo for both of us where I'm the gas and he's the brakes. And in different instances, we're very strong and effective gas pedals. And in others, we're good brakes for one another. Do y'all like a standing meeting or whether it's weekly or monthly or do y'all just kind of chat when you chat? I know we just work out of the same house and, um, you know, we walk by each other and start chatting or we have lunch most days, go for a lot of walks. But I think we both like it best when we're both kind of walking a parallel path, right? So he might be working on one deal. I'm working on another we get to meet up and talk about the high level, but we get to be the check, right? So if Chris is talking to a founder and he's enamored with him, I can be the check and say, hey, it's interesting. You mentioned this, this, and this. This deal has some hair on it. And he'll be so enamored with the founder he hadn't thought about that. 
So I, I find that a very, it's almost like pair programming or something. Yep. All right. A little bit on WeCommerce. Um, I guess first question, what is uh, WeCommerce? So, well, the story really started about 10 years ago. Um, one of the companies that I started after MetaLab was a company called Pixel Union. And Pixel Union was a, uh, or is a business that creates uh, templates for uh, Shopify. So when you start a Shopify store um, and you want a unique design, you go to their theme marketplace and you might buy one that is kind of in line with your style. And so we were Shopify's first partner um, in their theme marketplace and then over time got into apps and a bunch of other spaces within the Shopify ecosystem. And I sold that business in 2013. And after I sold it, I read about all the Buffett stuff. And when I read about the Buffett stuff, I went, man, this is, that was actually a really good business that I sold. And I, I kept uh, about 15% of it. And so I stayed on the board and kind of followed along and helped it grow and recruited a new CEO and worked with the new shareholders. Um, but in 2019, the shareholders kind of indicated that they would be willing to sell the business back to us. Um, and so we bit the bullet and we anteed up and paid, you know, something like five times, uh, paid them five times what they'd paid us for the business. And uh, we bought it back. And when we did that, we did it partly because, you know, A, it was just a really exceptional business on its own, but we were also very bullish about Shopify and e-commerce in general. And we saw an opportunity to go out and roll up that ecosystem and acquire a whole bunch more businesses in that same space. And so instead of doing the deal by ourselves, we ended up partnering with a few friends. Uh, and we had gotten to know uh, Andrew Marks, Bill Ackman, and Shane Parrish, and a few other interesting investors over the years. And they'd always expressed that if we ever had a deal, they would look at it. And so we nudged uh, a small handful of friends and said, hey, why don't we partner on this and we'll inject you know, another $25 million in and we'll start buying these businesses. And so we started acquiring you know, a whole bunch of great businesses in the Shopify ecosystem. And we realized pretty quickly that this was a very attractive business to the public market because it was an alternative way to invest in Shopify's growth. It was a, a barnacle on the whale, if you will. And so uh, in December, we took it public which is our first time ever doing that. And uh, man, it's you know a very uh, frustrating process, a lot of uh, documents and you know work to, to get it done, but it's been a really, really cool ride for us ever since. Uh, and so now we're just focused on acquiring exceptional businesses in the Shopify ecosystem. Uh, we just announced on Friday that we're, we've signed a definitive agreement to buy a business called Stamped for about 110 million. So that's our biggest deal to date, uh, which we're really excited about. And uh, yeah, we're really happy about it. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. I don't know if you remember the first time we chatted on the phone was the day you went public. Oh, dude, that's right. I remember. Yeah, you got me on an interesting day. <laughs> when did you know you were going to go public? And can you just paint a picture of what's different about going public through a SPAC versus the traditional way? Well, we didn't go public through a SPAC. That was kind of misreported. Okay. So in Canada, there's two ways to go public. There's a traditional IPO and there's something called a reverse takeover. And a reverse takeover in terms of mechanics is somewhat similar to a SPAC, but it's much smaller. So there's all these shell corporations where a few people go out 
and they group a hundred shareholders together and they take a blank check company public, but it only has like a hundred to a million dollars or a hundred thousand to a million dollars in it. And then uh, mining companies and, you know, small, uh, all sorts of small companies use those to go public very quickly. So similar to a spec in that it gets you public faster um, and it's a bit less of a process but it's much more common and it's not as dilutive. We didn't you know, have to give up a ton of warrants or ownership in the business to do it. Um, and you know, it's the same challenge of incentives, right? At the end of the day, you've got investment bankers you're um, negotiating against and you know, they want the lowest price for their customers and clients and they want an IPO pop and all that stuff. And you're trying to just focus on the long term and bring in the best possible shareholders who are going to be aligned with your vision and stick with you long term and not just dump the stock in the IPO. So that was a uh, you know a challenge. And I'd say that the most stressed you can ever be is when you're doing something for the first time and you don't know who to listen to and what advice is good and what's bad. And so there's lots of just parsing. You know, you've got a lot of different people whispering in your ears, lots of different advisors uh, and lawyers and everything else that you're trying to figure out, like, you know, how do we actually want to do this? But once you're public, it's it's amazing. I mean, the access to capital we've been able to get has been incredible. And we've got a really exceptional board. So I'm very pleased with how it's all turned out. When did you decide it was time to go public? Was it the it was it was starting to eat a lot of capital and you needed to raise a lot more? Or was there a reason why you went public? Um, no, we didn't really need to go public. We had a lot of money in the bank and we had a profitable business um, that was growing quite quickly. It was more, we saw the opportunity and we had posited it when we raised the money and did the deal. We actually have a, a deck that we gave out to, to everyone. And then the the final slide was, here's how we get our money back. And it's kind of everything from, we just cash flow it and hold it till we sell it to private equity to we take it public. Um, and it's really funny when you look at you know the taking a public route it's almost exactly the valuation that we actually took it public at. Um, so it was really cool seeing it play out almost exactly as we expected. Yep. And then I had written a note on Stamped, congrats on the announcement. You're good at not making your calendar too busy. And when I think of being the chairman of a public company on top of Tiny Capital and, and buying a $110 million company, like what was your involvement in that? Was it virtually none? And the team did a great job and and you were kind of blessing it or did you have to roll up your sleeves on that? Well, Chris did a lot of work on it and the M&A team at WeCommerce did a ton of work. The CFO did a ton of work. Various board members chimed in at different times. But in that business, um, you know, I'm, I'm really just a board member, right? So I was getting updates and kind of discussing it with Chris. I'm the chairman, um, but I wasn't the one pulling it over the line. I wasn't talking to the founder or anything like that. And generally, I like to structure things like that. So within Tiny, when a deal comes in, I'm not typically talking to anyone or even looking at a deal in depth until somebody on my team, you know, someone really smart has dug into it, decided it's within our circle of competence, realized that we can buy it for a fair price, et cetera. Just so I'm not constantly context switching and going down rabbit trails um, and digging into things that probably won't go anywhere. Yep. What have you learned from Bill Ackman along the way, and how did you meet him? Um, it was funny. I um, I'm a shareholder. I, I bought a lot of stock in Pershing Square Holdings um, when it dropped after his whole Valiant um, issue, 
And it started trading for kind of 40% below what the net asset value was. So the actual stock portfolio uh, on the books. And I just went, wow, it's a blue chip stock portfolio that I can buy at 40% off. I don't care what you think of Bill or anything else. Um, you know, I'm very happy to to buy that. You know, it's a nice insurance policy. Um, and so I bought a lot of stock. Um, and then I saw a charity lunch pop up on Charity Buzz with Bill. Um, and I went, hey, this is fun. You know, I find Bill interesting. I kind of watched a lot of his um, interviews and followed along with him for a long time. And I figured, hey, I'll I'll bid on this and you know, worst case, we don't get along and I I sell my stock and it's kind of a diligence lunch. And I have a funny story of, you know, having a lunch with Bill. Um, but best case, you know, maybe he's a cool guy and we get along and, you know, I become more of a shareholder. Um, and so we, Chris and I went for lunch with Bill and um, we didn't know what to expect. And we showed up at lunch and he was just incredibly charming and friendly and asked us a ton of questions and we just totally hit it off. And along the way, he started sharing that he'd actually made a lot of technology investments. He'd invested in Uber and Coupang um, and did a lot of um, tech investing via his family office. And at the end of the lunch, he said, look, I really like you guys. We should do something together. If you ever have a deal, uh, you know, nudge me. And so when the time came, we, we nudged him. And, you know, otherwise, I just kind of kept in touch with him and picked his brain about different things. You know, and with Bill, Bill is incredibly persistent, incredibly straightforward, and he holds people to account. And I think one of my weak points has been in the past, a inability to hold someone to something they said. Um, you know, let's say one of my CEOs says, you know, this is the right strategy. And then they go and blow up, you know, a million dollars or something. There's times where I've been conflict averse and not sat them down and said, look, you know, I'm not mad, but here's everything you did that mess this up and here's what went wrong and you know you're going to be held to account what do you have to say and you know kind of holding people to a high bar i think i've avoided conflict in the past i'm getting better at this bill is incredibly good at holding people to a very high bar he has very high expectations for those around him and it's amazing what happens people just rise to the occasion they step up and you know they they do what he expects of them um, and he does it in a very respectful straightforward way but he's very blunt and uh, I've taken a lot from that. And then the other, the other piece is just thinking very long term, thinking in decades, not uh, you know, not months, not panicking, and you know, worrying about the markets or anything. Just focusing on building, operating earnings and intrinsic value, and knowing that if you keep compounding it, you know, anywhere from ten to thirty percent, things work out pretty bloody well. Yeah. Does he? Did he on that accountability? Did he just share about? Is that? Is that being very upfront about what's what you're being held accountable for, and then obviously having the, you know, that's just, it's really just witnessing that, right? Of working yeah. with him, and you know, just the way that he operates uh, is is just being very very straightforward, and then you know, saying you know, I believe you can do this, and leaving you to it. But then if you say you're going to do something, you know, you have to do it, and if you uh, are going to tell him something, you need to be well prepared and know what you're talking about. There's no no BSing. All right, a couple more on on business, and then we'll do some some personal and bring it home. But I'm always fascinated uh, as an observer about how you spin companies up pretty quickly. You supercast mailman buyer.io. You started a local newspaper. Um, it's kind of a loaded question, but 
What's your process from like idea to getting something spun up pretty quickly and on a budget? Do you immediately go look for us like a person to build it or just kind of walk me through kind of how you go from idea to businesses up and running? So the most important thing, in my opinion, is when you have an idea, first of all, you need to know if it's good. And the only way you can know it's, if it's good is by starting a lot of businesses in the past and having them fail. And realize, or, or hopefully, if you're really smart, reading books about people who have started really dumb businesses and had them fail. In my instance, uh, you know, it's I've had a lot of dumb businesses in the past, and uh, you know, didn't understand different business models or margins. You know, we had a restaurant that I lost a ton of money on. Uh, I started a skincare business. Uh, started an online DJ school. I lost. Uh, you know, a ton of money on a startup business I started. Like just, I've, I've had those, I have the scar tissue. So when an idea pops into my head, I can assess it pretty well. I've got a pretty quick filter to go, there's something here, there's not. And then if it sticks with me for, you know, a day or two, I'll go, okay, there's something here, I should do this. Um, I always try and start with a public statement. So my first step is often to go to Twitter and say, I am doing this or telling a friend that I'm doing this. And then I also try and make it real. So I come up with a name um, for the project or for the company. I try and create a logo and I try and create a website. And those three things kind of lock me into doing it and make it real. Um, at any given time, I'm still ready to throw it away. And you know, at this point, I still don't care. But at least it's a real thing that's being formed. Once you have those things, you can actually attract people to come and get involved in the business. And this is a bit of a challenging chicken or the egg problem where... Today, I'm able to do something I couldn't do 10 years ago, which is attract great operators. There's a, a long line of people who have said, hey, we want to work with tiny companies. And so when I have a great idea, I can usually go on Twitter and ask around or I can email our list of people who have said they want to work with us and say, hey, does anyone want to run you know, a furniture brand, an e-commerce store, uh, you know, a news business, whatever it is. And usually there's someone who steps up. And then from that point on, it's really just empowering them to execute and continuing to keep an eye on the kind of you know high level details and pushing them along. When I built my house, um, you know, I, w- I went through building a house over the last four years, and I've probably only spent ten hours on it in total. Um, and the way I did that was by hiring really, really great people. So I hired a really good project manager, a really good architect, really good interior designer. And a really good general contractor, and I trusted all of them, and I incentivized all of them to really care. And I think I apply that same methodology to business. Um, so I really just try and hire great people, have the right idea, be very clear about what I need, and then let them run with it. And so there's been multiple businesses that I've spun up where I've probably only spent three to five hours total. Um, and past starting it and coming up with the concept my real value is I can fund the businesses um, so they don't need to go raise capital and I can promote them via Twitter and talking about what I'm doing. To be honest, it's really just me scratching my own itches and really they're hobby businesses. So, uh, you know, while I take them seriously and I want them to grow, um, it's something I do off the side of my desk for fun to keep me engaged. And I usually do them when I'm distracted. Um, or when I'm sorry, when not when I'm distracted, when I'm bored, right? So, um, you know, if we're in a bit of a lull and my life's kind of dull, that's when I'll start a business. You know, it's not something I do uh, to, you know, that I, I don't ever want a job again, you know? 
And you like if you took buyer.io, which uh, negotiates basically SaaS con or negotiates on behalf of buyers for uh, different contracts they could have. Did you just were you just really clear up front? This is what I want the website to do. This is what it this is what a great product would look like at the end. Here you go. Go build it and good luck. That one was a little more organic. So one of the temptations of having as many businesses as we do is synergy where we start to go, hey, we're spending, um, you know, $5 million on Amazon uh, EC2. We should group everyone together and, you know, negotiate as a block. And we pretty quickly realized we didn't want to have a procurement department. And then the other thing is that Chris and I are maniacal about cost, right? So when we ran um, Meta Lab and some of the other businesses, we would negotiate everything. You know, if we're buying uh, $20,000 worth of office furniture, we're going to go get three quotes. We're going to pit them against each other. We're going to try and get the best possible price because at the end of the day, we lived and died on our PL. We didn't have the bank backing us up. We didn't have investors. And so we really had to care. And we've realized that you can't really incentivize employees to have that owner mindset when it comes to negotiation. And negotiation is a very uncomfortable skill set. I talk to most entrepreneurs and they find it uncomfortable and don't want to do it. And so what ended up happening was we started searching for somebody to negotiate on our behalf on one-off things. So it'd be like, oh, hey, we're going to go do an office lease or we're going to buy this expensive software. And I heard through the grapevine that a friend of a friend really loved to negotiate everything. And I said, I went to him and I said, look, can I pay you 20% of whatever the savings are? And we started doing this. And he started, you know, when I would buy a car, he would do it on my behalf. When we were buying office furniture, he'd do it. Like, you know, you name it. I started introducing him around to different different companies. And we went, hey, this is a business. This is really awesome. And the bonus is it's a business that helps us with synergy without synergizing and creating more head office bloat or anything else. And we're not going to force any of the companies to use buyer. They can go and use a different procurement service if they want. And at the end of the day, the business has to stand on its own two feet. So it's been really, really cool to kind of see that evolve. Yeah, that's awesome. I've shared that with several people. Um, all right. One more on kind of business and then we'll get to personal and, and bring it home. But you wrote a, uh, a, a medium article or maybe a blog post that, that got a lot of attention on basically why Joe Rogan sold himself short and could have made a lot more money uh, off of his podcast. And, and then you started a company called Supercast. So the question is, um, what's the biggest thing creators are missing about monetization? Um, and how do you think about it? So, I mean, logically, most podcasters think of um, podcasts as just radio that's on your own time, like a, you know, like almost like TiVo or something for radio. And the way that radio was historically monetized was via advertising. So that seems very logical. And in my opinion, um, it's kind of like in 1999, everybody thought the advertising model would apply to internet software as well. So if you went and you used a survey software on your um, website, you know, a poll software or something, there'd be a little banner ad, right? That was the the, the narrative is there's going to be banner ads everywhere and it's just about eyeballs and it's like, you know, billboards on the highway or whatever. And then over time, people started realizing that instead of advertising, the much better model was to say for five bucks a month, you can inject a poll onto your website or whatever it is. And internet software was born and SaaS was born. And I think that same thing 
is going to happen with podcasting. And nobody's quite realized it yet, except for a select few. So the way I came across this was a friend of mine had a, a podcast and he had been very principled. He just didn't want advertising. He felt it compromised his integrity. And so he put a donation button on his website and started saying on his podcast, if you enjoy what I'm doing, donate five bucks a month or whatever it was. So, uh, you know, I got to know him, was helping him with another project. And he said, hey, can you take a look at my um, podcast and see if you have any ideas for the business? And I started looking at it and I was like, oh, my God, this guy has like SaaS recurring revenue with no churn because everyone loves his podcast. Everyone's happy to give money and he has no costs. So there's no R&D costs at all. And so when I when I met him, he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars recurring a month. And it was him, a microphone, a soundboard, and a part-time editor. So he had like 98% net margins. And it was growing at like 50% year over year. And I was like, holy crap, this is insane. Like, how is nobody else doing this? And if you think about like Howard Stern, um, Howard Stern in like 2000 did this big deal with Sirius XM. And it made sense then because he could, um, you know, he needed a distribution network. He needed to either be on terrestrial or satellite radio. If you look at what people pay to get Howard Stern, it's like 15 or 20 bucks on Sirius. Today, Howard Stern could cut Sirius out of the equation completely and just do a subscription podcast where his, his subscribers can pay him nine bucks a month or something. And if he did that, instead of making $100 million a year or whatever it is he makes, he can make $300 million a year uh, and basically cut out Sirius completely. And so I was really advocating for Rogan um, to do the exact same thing. I think Rogan seems like somebody who doesn't want a middleman or a tech behemoth to define what he can say or to own his audience. I think it makes a lot more sense for him to continue to own his audience and to monetize via subscription and maybe do you know, a couple episodes a week that are behind a paywall or extended episodes or something else for his true fans. Um, and so I just kind of did the math on that. And I think it's insane. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that, you know, Rogan shouldn't have signed a $100 million exclusive deal with Spotify. Um, but in my opinion, it was completely insane, not only financially, but he's giving up all the subscribers that he's getting on Spotify. If he ever leaves Spotify, he loses millions of subscribers that he gained over the last year. Yep. It makes so much sense. Hopefully we'll be having this conversation about me one day, but for now we'll have it about Rogan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I would love, I'd love to have one of those podcasts. We met on Twitter. I, I, although Twitter's old, um, you know, in years old, I still feel like it's so early in the Twitter game and they haven't even scratched the surface of, of what they could do. That's how we met. You've mentioned multiple times that, uh, it's a it's a huge megaphone and tool for you. So my question is, if you were CEO of Twitter for the next few years, what would you do to change the company? Well, I always say the biggest network always wins, right? So if you look at it, like look at Instagram versus Snapchat, right? Instagram's been able to copy a lot of Snapchat's functionality and eliminate that competition, right? It's not that Snapchat won't be a good business. It won't be that it, it's not that it won't get big, but they can really undercut it. And as you're the biggest network, uh, that's where everyone wants to go. They want to go where their friends are. And so Twitter has this tremendous advantage in that the world's leaders uh, and intellectuals and business people uh, and, you know, basically the top of every industry is on Twitter. 
and there's a very effective network effect. What they haven't done is figured out ways to monetize that network effect. Um, and I think that what they're starting to do with spaces and with their acquisition of the newsletter business is start to monetize um, where people get sent off of Twitter. So a lot of people use Twitter to say, hey, I'm hosting a Clubhouse AMA or hey, go sign up for my newsletter. And I think it's very smart of Twitter to say, hey, why send people over there? We'll pay, you know, you don't even have to pay. We'll give you a free service that does that exact same thing. And by doing that, create really great lock into their platform and start building additional revenue. Um, So if you look at it, I mean, they've now kind of in two months, they've tackled Clubhouse, OnlyFans, um, and uh, Substack all in one. And frankly, if I was Substack and my number one source of customer acquisition was Twitter, I'd be pretty terrified, right? Because if Twitter, um, you know, can create a 10% conversion rate from their post, and if you link Substack, it's 5%, pretty obvious that you don't want to use Substack, especially if they're going to charge you 10% to use the service and Twitter's saying it's 2%. Yep. Oh, man. And and then you take like a clubhouse, like does clubhouse have any defensibility if spaces takes off? Well, I, I think um, maybe. It may, it may, but I think that if Spaces takes off quickly, that might swipe the legs out from under Clubhouse. Because I think most of the most of the time when I discover a Clubhouse, it's because I'm on Twitter. And it would be, frankly, a better experience for me to just tap a tweet and then jump into the space. Um, the other opportunity I see is, like, if you look at what Evan Williams went off and started with Medium... I think Twitter could easily copy that, right? If I could write a blog post on Twitter, I've I've really changed from I used to write on Medium and now I just write tweet storms. If I could just write a single tweet and say, here's my opinion on this, and I could actually do like a blog post that's integrated right into Twitter, I'd absolutely love that. And I think they can um the beauty of owning a network is that it's kind of like a it's like an airport. Everyone has to show up to an airport. Millions of people have to sit there all day, every day. And you get to choose all the different stalls. What are the stores around them, right? You might want to sell them magazines. You might want to sell them massages. You might want to give them a fancy restaurant, a wine bar, et cetera. And that's what a social network is. You just have this captive audience and you can sell them all sorts of different things. So I think Twitter has almost infinite opportunity um, and they're just starting to capitalize on it. And um, I'm really happy to see it, frankly, because it's been driving me crazy. Yeah, me, me too. I actually... I've never owned Twitter stock until two weeks ago, and I finally bit the bullet and said, I think it's time. So we'll see. Verdict's out. Yeah, I think that's a good bet. All right. You kind of mentioned it at the very beginning, but I've, I've having done 120 of these episodes now, there's always a recurring theme. Is there something that you experienced as a kid? Uh, maybe it was like a defining moment or just maybe a sport you played or something that you probably wouldn't be where you are today had you not experienced that as a kid? I think it was moving, honestly, like being taken out of my, like I was in the middle of high school. I moved from a big city to a small city. I didn't know anyone. I had to reinvent myself. And in a lot of ways, it was sad, right? I was away from my friends and was in a new place and was kind of mad at my parents for moving us. But it ended up being a blessing in disguise because I had this summer where I learned how to build websites and I started engaging in the internet and building all these businesses. And then I ended up falling in love with the city and I still live here. But, you know, it's one of those things that in retrospect, 
was incredibly formative and important. And I don't know what I would be doing if I was in uh, Vancouver still. So it's very interesting to think about all those different uh, sliding doors. All right, last question. What's the best advice somebody's ever given you? So I remember I went to my dad and my dad, um, when I was first starting my business, I had just gotten a couple clients and um, I was super scared to hire my first employee. And my dad had run his own business, you know, architecture firm and stuff. And I remember he said to me, light a fire under your own ass, right? By going out and having a payroll, you're going to be forced to jump into the deep end and learn how to swim. Just do it. And I think in most instances where there's low downside, I had very little to lose. Um, I see a lot of people just not jump in. And often you need to be able to just push yourself and move forward with something. Um, and I, I always remember that. I think that was a, a bit of a crossroads where I easily could have said, you know what, I'm going to be a one-man band and I'm too scared to have a payroll and I don't want to work with other people and it's too much complexity. But my dad kind of pushed me over the edge. Uh, and I always think back to that. I love it. How can people get in touch with you? So the best way is just on Twitter. Um, that's where I post most of my uh, thoughts and what I'm what I'm working on and stuff. Uh, or they could always email me. Uh, and I won't say my email out loud, but people can probably figure it out. It's <laughs> Andrew at the website that I uh, have. Um, yeah. Andrew, thanks so much, man, for joining me. Uh, I love it and, and just appreciate Every, all the, all that you've taught me over the years. Yeah, it's been great getting to know you and awesome to be here. I, I'm a very uh, avid listener, so it's cool to uh, be on. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.